Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How is the current collapse in oil prices different from past busts? Climate One conversations feature energy companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Over the past decade, the U.S. oil industry has grown by leaps and bounds. That's largely due to the spread of fracking technology, helped along by administrations that have kept the cost of oil leases low. One of the least told secrets of operating in the United States is it is probably the least expensive region of the world in which to drill and produce oil. Today, the U.S. leads the world in oil production, surpassing both Russia and Saudi Arabia. That's led to pushback from environmentalists, regulators, and some institutional investors. And when it comes to climate change, major oil companies are under pressure to be part of the solution rather than the problem. We simply have to get negative emissions. The oil and gas industry, I think, is supremely qualified to have the scale, to have the engineers, to have the expertise to undertake problems like that. On today's program, we'll talk about the decade in oil, from the go-go days beginning in 2010 to the historic crash of 2020 during the COVID pandemic. I'm pleased to welcome three distinguished guests. Heather Richards is a reporter who covers offshore drilling for energy and environment news. Bill Riley was administrator of the US EPA under the first President Bush, and he co-chaired the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill. John Hoffmeister is former president of Shell Oil and author of the book, Why We Hate the Oil Companies, Straight Talk from an Energy Insider. Full disclosure, both Bill Riley and John Hoffmeister have in the past been financial contributors to Climate One, and Shell Oil is a contributor this year. America's latest oil boom began with a bang, literally, on Earth Day 2010. That's when an offshore oil rig owned by BP exploded, killing 11 workers and spilling nearly 5 million barrels of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. John Hoffmeister clearly remembers the day it happened. Well, I, I believe I was in Washington, D.C. at the time and doing work for the not-for-profit company that I had formed called Citizens for Affordable Energy. I remember hearing about the explosion and seeing uh, flames coming off the platform from a TV that was nearby. And I said, oh, not again. And what did I mean? Oh, not again. This was obviously a BP project. And I was the president of Shell Oil Company when the Texas City disaster happened. And also when the pipeline leaks in Alaska happened, for which BP pleaded criminally guilty over the violations in Alaska. And when I thought, oh, no, not again. It just seems to me that something is deadly wrong inside that company because no other company in in the world had had the BP experience of the last, say, seven years. John Brown was the CEO of BP who took the company into the top tier of global oil companies and rebranded the company as Beyond Petroleum. I interviewed him last year, and he said the Deepwater Horizon didn't happen on his watch. Some people say that the cost-cutting he put in motion contributed to it. He departed four years prior. Uh, John Hoffmeister was one of his peers at the top of, the major, of a major oil company. How do you see John Brown's role in the debacle? Well, John Brown, first of all, is st brilliant strategically. He understand, understands the industry. He understands the macroeconomic impact of the industry on the global economy. But as an operator, he was not highly regarded 
and and oil industry is about operations. It's a life and death risk every day for tens of thousands of people in the industry who are at not the coal face as in a coal mine, but who are at the oil face. And the pressures, the temperatures, the explosive risk that is ever present has got to be the primary responsibility of every senior operating person in an oil company. And I don't think John had that in his DNA. He had other things, but not that. And because he was the leader for such a long time at BP, he had people around him who were more focused on the strategic direction of the company as contrasted with the day-to-day operations, which was left to the little people. And because of the, the pressure on cost, the pressure on cost inside BP was probably the number one priority as we from the outside of the company saw it because BP's nickname in the industry was called best price. Best price means cheapest cost. And, and that's not a phrase of any praise. It's an insult because in the oil industry, the first and basic responsibility of every senior leader is to make sure that the life and the safety of every person in the company is protected to the ultimate on on every occasion. And so whatever the safety features are, whatever the backup positions are, and, and here's another reality. In every company I'm familiar with, the people responsible for safety in the company have their own direct line to the CEO, not through the operating management. That was not the case at BP. The safety people worked for the operating people, so they were under the command and control of the operations people. Not so in in the other companies I'm familiar with, including my own former company. I had direct responsibility as the president of Shell Oil for safety through the safety leader who reported to me, not to anyone else. And what she said was, was, from my point of view, it was law. She could override operating decisions because of the risk to people or the risk to facilities or the risk to the environment. And she exercised that because that was her responsibility. So I would go back to your original question and say, uh, I'm not sure what was in the mind of Tony Hayward, who was the CEO of BP at the time, or the head of the upstream business, who, when they had been briefed on the cost versus the high pressure, high temperature issues of the rig, their decision was shut it in, shut in that well. And, And that's where it all went wrong. Bill Riley, you came in to, to chair the commission that that uh, studied this debacle. You're looking back 10 years later, what are the key lessons? What went wrong at uh, Deepwater Horizon? My first reaction, really, was to recall that I had overseen the Exxon Valdez in 1989. And I was so surprised that we were not better prepared. We were wholly unprepared in Alaska. We didn't have uh, adequate equipment, containment, all of that. Uh, The skimmers weren't working effectively. And there was very little money in the federal treasury to attend to any of that. Happily, the company that uh, was implicated took responsibility. And that was Exxon at the time. And uh, they carried it. My first reaction, honestly, on the BP situation in Macondo was to think, well, A company like that is going to be capable of stepping up to carry the costs associated with a very expensive cleanup. And uh, that is the only positive I think I saw in it. The fact that it happened and it involved a highly sophisticated company, I was on the board of ConocoPhillips at the time, frankly surprised me. And the more that we inquired into the circumstances that led to it, the more it was a case of um, not just one thing went wrong, but a whole series of things went wrong. And uh, that was not a credit to the company, obviously. And they paid the price. It cost 50% of their market cap, their market capital and their stock market as a result. The extraordinary and disappointing thing today is that whenever I talk to CEOs in businesses that have had catastrophes, whatever it happens to be, Uh, oil companies or cruise lines, whatever, I ask if analysts ask them about safety on their calls, their quarterly calls. And not yet has anyone said, yes, they do. 
they move on. Heather Richards, what do you see as the impact of Deepwater Horizon 10 years on? Um, you know, it was definitely this uh, pivot point, I think, for the industry and for the public in terms of how we view oil and gas development, uh, particularly offshore. Um, Ten years later, we're definitely in a very different environment, though, um, in terms of, you know, kind of who is at the helm is, is a very different culture right now um, under the Trump administration than there was under the Obama administration that kind of handled deep water and spent a lot of time developing regulations to kind of respond to what deep water was and prevent that from happening again. Um, so we really have come to into, I think, a different period in terms of how regulators look at offshore, in terms of how industry looks at its role offshore. You know, I think deep water was certainly a, a lot of lessons were learned there, but, you know, we've, we've kind of moved past that into a, to a different time period. And I don't necessarily hear people talk about deep water except as something that happened quite a long time ago that we've kind of moved past that in terms of technology, in terms of where the industry is going, um, and in terms of, you know, how we regulate offshore. Bill Riley, uh, there were some reforms enacted after the Deepwater Horizon so that the regulators were no longer, uh, the sheriffs weren't paid by the industry that they were they were policing, some other things put in, put in place. Have those been undone? Because some of the members of your commission, I believe, have written saying, hey, we're concerned that some of the lessons after Deepwater have been loosened or unlearned. There was a fair amount of progress made. The uh, inspectors capabilities, capacities, understanding of the various systems, which was woefully inadequate when the Coast Guard and Interior Department investigated it after the spill. That has been improved, the hiring of inspectors. There are many more engineers now, and that's very encouraging. Also, when there is a, a near miss, it is reported, and explanations are demanded about exactly why did this occur, uh, how will it not occur again? What have you done to make sure of that? So th those are positive. And um, I think the most encouraging part of what has happened has been what the industry itself has done. They established, as we recommended in the commission, the Center for Offshore Safety. They review all of the environmental programs that are developed by the companies, critique them, send them back, improve them before they're sent to the Interior Department. And my understanding from the uh, individuals who are responsible for that center say that there has been significant improvement. It is, however, uh, a dangerous business. And people often neglect the fact that there had been 950 fires in the nine years before the Macondo disaster. 1,550 people had been injured. 60 people had been killed. It's a dangerous, risky business. And it's one reason that uh, we have to keep the pressure on. One wonders because there's a, not a lot of uh, transparency at the Interior Department, the two entities that deal mostly with this, these responsibilities. There's not a lot of uh, transparency on, for example, why waivers are routinely granted and quite a lot of waivers. And what are they for? We don't know. We asked at the commission that henceforth there be an annual report upon safety on the, the goods and the bads, the strengths and the weaknesses. That has not been done. Uh, there is a very low morale, I am told, at the Interior Department and the, and the entities dealing with offshore oil. I don't know enough about what, what some of that involves, but uh, well, that's, that's revealing in itself. We get very little out of the agency. The biggest failure, I think, is the Congress to deal with the permanent statutory separation of promotion of offshore oil and gas development, which this uh, administration is very aggressive on, versus the regulation, the protection, the safety. As long as those two things are mixed, I think uh, it's, a, it's a very dangerous situation. And this administration, the first secretary of the interior made it clear he, he wanted to put, them, to put them back together where they had been since uh, Secretary Watt had, had done that. There are some other things that Congress ought to do. I think that they are underfunding some of the protections that are required and undercharging, honestly, the oil industry for um, their part of liability protection. John Hoffmeister, your response to a couple of things there, that the oil industry is not paying enough uh, for their, their participation for the, I guess, liability. And you talked about how uh, the business side and the safety side were separated at the companies, but in government, the money side and the, and the oversight side are connected. Is that a conflict? I think if you start on the point of the fees paid by the oil companies for the leases that they are granted, 
one of the least told secrets of operating in the United States is it is probably the least expensive region of the world in which to drill and produce oil. And that is a factor of the Congress and the administrations of the past letting the uh, current fees continue much as they have. In the Obama administration, there was an effort to raise the royalty fee, but in the end, it was a very minor raise. And if you consider that uh, on a given day in the North Sea, the United Kingdom raised the royalty fee to 50% of the revenue of, of what was produced in the North Sea, in the U.S., it averages somewhere around 18% of the revenue. Tremendous cost differential. Uh, with respect to how the government governs, I agree that the fragmentation of the government is of no service to anyone from my point of view, because the integration of the companies is what makes it successful. But the government is divided, and I can only put it to the petty politics of the Congress and who wants to hold on to what powers or responsibilities or authorities, and the same exists in the executive agencies. They have been granted over periods of time certain responsibilities, and, and probably the least favored term that when I was president of Shell, what I hated to hear was, well, we'll, we'll, we'll create an intergovernmental panel to look at such and such. An intergovernmental panel to an operating company like uh, I was a part of was a joke. Trying to get a meeting set up between multiple departments of the executive branch is like trying to get uh, Army and Navy to sit down and have a peaceful football game. It isn't going to happen. And so the the fragmentation, the lack of integration, the lack of leadership that comes from that fragmentation, I think is hurtful to the US, United States government, but it's also hurtful to the industry, which, and let me say this, because some people may disagree with me. The industry as I know it, just like the aerospace industry, is absolutely compliant to the law and to the regulation, because that's the license to operate. It's just like preserving life and limb and facilities. You have got to be compliant or you lose the license to operate. And so the government is what requires and demands the compliance. But if it's split and, and fragmented between, uh, if I went to Washington, I would go to the Interior Department, the EPA, the, uh, and the Commerce Department, because NOAA, which is within the Commerce Department, is entirely responsible for offshore operations. And, and, and along with a segment of the Interior Department. And they don't necessarily agree on policy or practice. And so the, it's just a very serious gap in trying to run an effective and efficient industry on behalf of the, 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 the markets that are served, as well as the people of the United States who pay taxes for what they would expect to be good, safe operations from the industry through the regulatory process. It needs a lot of work. Heather Richards, you cover the industry. Do you see that same kind of compliance, companies always trying to abide by the rules, or do you see kind of people cutting corners when no one's looking? I mean, that, <laughs> that's a tough question. I think um, I think that the way that, in, in terms of offshore, that the way the operators talk about compliance is they'll, they'll say that they've come a long way since deep water. Um, the interior uh, under the Trump administration will say they work very closely with industry and, hey, nobody wants anybody to die. Uh, nobody wants to spill any oil. Nobody wants any kind of those hazards. Um, and I think that is what you consistently hear. Obviously, um, it comes down to management and leadership um, as well as, uh, you know, just kind of individuals going out there and, and, and being part of a safety culture. And so I think that, that it's, it's, it's a very hard, it's a very hard question to, to answer. I mean, do, do, does an industry cut corners? Do, does an individual company cut, cut corners? I'm sure that happens. Um, you know what I mean? I think where, where I find out about it and where, where we have a discussion about it in, in, in a public sphere is when regulators flag it and find it and are kind of transparent about what they see. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a complicated kind of balance. And I think that, um, that underlying kind of attitude of, Hey, industry doesn't want anybody to get hurt. Industry is, um, industries who knows operations best because they, obviously they're the experts, um, and, uh, and, and reasonable people can agree on that, 
that there's a lot of expertise and and just excellence in the industry in terms of doing these kind of things, uh, these kind of uh, you know kind of incredible operations, you know, far off the shore, deep water, high pressure, high temperature. Um, but you know, you it, it, that that kind of you still have to have somebody kind of watching. You have to have excellence in terms of regulators as well, and and I think that's where I see a, a bit of a a bit of a difficulty answering your question because there's a conflict in terms of um, what is what is told and what is like kind of portrayed by industry and what happens on the ground, and and I think it really depends on you know uh, how aggressive are your regulators. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the changing oil industry. Coming up, can we reduce our fossil fuel production without plunging the rest of the world into darkness? There's still 2 billion people don't have energy, and there's still incredible poverty in the world that I think still needs to be alleviated. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. I want to take a second to tell you about a new podcast called Heat of the Moment, produced by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. This 12-part series looks at the climate crisis from a number of different angles, including food waste, energy production, and deforestation, and provides hope for a way forward. Each episode features a comprehensive interview with an expert as well as an in-depth field report. That's Heat of the Moment. Look for it on your favorite podcast platform. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the past decade of oil production. My guests are John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil, Bill Riley, former EPA administrator, who also co-chaired the commission that investigated the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, and Heather Richards, energy reporter for E&E News. Last September, the Trump administration announced they plan to open up Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil drilling. This could be seen as a big win for the petroleum industry, but Bill Riley isn't so sure. My experience with uh, the oil industry, certainly ConocoPhillips, was that they had no interest in going into the wildlife refuge. There is a lot of uh, oil on the north slope, on the western slope, without going into the wildlife refuge. At the present uh, value of oil, there's particularly, I think, a disincentive to go there. In my view, the first company that does go and get involved there will be very much in the sights of certainly all of the environmental groups and um, probably uh, analysts as well because I think uh, I think you, you don't have to go in America today, which is has been awash in oil and gas. You don't have to go to the places that are most fragile, most dangerous, and most important to the culture and to wildlife. Bill Riley, what are the lasting environmental impacts of the Deepwater Horizon? People remember the, you know, the oil slicked beaches and the impact on tourism and fishing, et cetera. What do we know about the environmental impact in the Gulf? There have been lasting impacts on whales, I'm told, some of which have just come to to awareness in the in the recent past. Several species of birds have had their populations affected in ways that are not fully understood, but appear to be related to the spill. There is subwater, or, or rather, bottom characteristics in the in the muds, in the oil muds that have affected the bacterial composition, which probably affects all of the bottom feeders. I remember that um, the oil was affecting the shallow waters. It got into shallow waters and basically putting the oyster men out of business. A lot of Vietnamese oyster boats had to simply stop work. So there were a, a range of effects that uh, some of which were immediate and obvious, others of which we continue to, as a result of the research that goes on, which has been amply funded research, by the way, it's a responsible way to get a fix on how serious that problem is, but it continues to uh, reveal significant problems in some species still. 
Let's talk about where the industry's gone from this point. There is, you know, the 2010s, be, you know, began with this this disaster, America's biggest oil disaster. But there was then this this boom. America produced more oil than ever. A lot of it onshore. Um, it be, surpassed Saudi Arabia, became the world's largest producer. Um, John Hoffmeister, your take on, you know, what that meant for the industry and for the United States economy, where we started to export oil for the first time. It had been illegal, and Congress passed a law allowing the United States to export oil. Uh, meanwhile, climate's getting more serious. Yes, I think the first thing that comes to my mind in this regard is the industry continuously reinvents itself with technology. And so the technology of hydraulic fracking combined with horizontal drilling led to a complete reopening of many ancient reservoirs in this country that are called shale. Shale is another way of describing what is a, a, a horizontal uh, reservoir rather than a vertical reservoir. And with horizontal drilling and fracking, the combination of the two unleashes tremendous amounts of mineral resources that are under the earth within the geography of the United States, especially North Dakota, Permian Basin, and uh, some other locations in the country. And, and it just has been a revolution of technology rather than anything else. And, and, and given that the US was at the time, when the shale revolution was taking place, was importing nearly two thirds of its oil, it was a national security issue to increase domestic production, to try to be less reliant on imported oil. But even today, with the shale revolution, the US still imports between six and eight million barrels of oil a day from outside the country. So we're not yet oil secure or energy secure, I should say. And so the industry plays a, a vital role, I think, in producing mineral resources that are still in demand by the American economy. Greg, may I ask a question of John? Please. The um, Holy Father, Francis, Pope Francis, spoke to an assembly of virtually all of the major oil company CEOs in the Vatican uh, some months ago. And he said that um, energy is necessary to civilization, but energy can destroy civilization. And he strongly recommended that the industry stop building up reserves. Another analysis has shown that something like 84% of existing reserves can never be built consistent with keeping the temperature to two degrees or less. How or how seriously would you take something like that? And do you see a path to the industry acting in the way that the, that the Pope recommended? I actually do not. There was a, a strong feeling within the industry that, and to quote scripture in some respect, uh, leave unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, leave unto God that which is God's. So let the Holy Father focus on the religious life while the economic life of the world belongs in someone else's court. Some may say that's cynical on the part of the industry, but what the Holy Father doesn't recognize and doesn't acknowledge uh, is the fact that the evaporation of poverty in many parts of the world is directly related to the mineral resources that are extracted from multiple parts of the geologic and geographic world. And we're not there yet. There's still built two billion people don't have energy, and there's still incredible poverty in the world that I think still needs to be alleviated. He, he was talking about the reserves. Can, do you believe that we can burn the 84 percent of the fuels that's uh, said to make it impossible to achieve Paris? No, I don't. I, I think there is a huge, huge effort underway within the industry today that is symbolized by the oil and gas climate coalition, which is putting its money where its mouth is to try to address the environmental remediation of what both the industry produces and consumers consume in terms of moving toward net neutral uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, ultimately achieving net negative carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. I think that work is beginning uh, for clarification and transparency. I'm part of the Carbon Management Center at the University of Houston and have spoken uh, quite aggressively, in fact, about the need for remediation and the price on carbon as necessary steps for the industry to take and have 
really uh, <laughs> spoken out against the political process of this nation and the world, which fails to put a price on carbon. Everything that I know, all my investigations indicate that although it is a position of the industry that a carbon tax is desirable, the Trade Association makes none of those arguments to senators and Congress members. I'm told that by several senators that uh, that's not what they hear. It's not a primary objective. So it doesn't strike me that it's, it's a deeply held conviction. Well, uh, we, we may talk to different audiences because I, 20 years ago, I was wearing out shoe leather in the halls of Congress asking for a price on carbon. I was a strong advocate in the Climate Action Coalition back in those days with 35 other companies trying to frame a cap and trade bill. I remember so very we, well. We could begin to put a price on carbon. There are only two American companies who are part of it, and you were, you were one of one, and for the, you were very respected for that. Right. But the political process has failed the nation, in my opinion, on addressing the real climate effect. And, 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 and it was a disgrace to withdraw from the Paris Accord. And yes, I understand all the criticisms of the Paris Accord that is unenforceable and it gives special credits to certain countries like China. But it's a, a line in the sand. And that line in the sand is so important to set a direction and to set a mindset, particularly for future generations to say, this began when, and, and, and now the steps need to be taken. And, and I'm hopeful that somehow we correct the political process of polarization I do too. to come together on, on this reality that we've got to deal with the environmental issue and the temperature of the earth. If you're just joining us, we're talking about uh, the decade of oil from 2010 to 2020 at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil, Bill Riley, former administrator of the EPA under the first President Bush and co-chair of the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill, and Heather Richards, who covers offshore oil and gas for E&E News, Energy and Environment News. We have a question from uh, YouTube. Andy asks, what do the speakers think of BP's recently announced net zero carbon initiative. Uh, John Hoffmeister, you've been quite critical of, of BP. What about and there others, Total and, and I believe Shell, have these net zero uh, ambitions? They're a little fuzzy and they're different. Are, are, is industry getting real here? Yes. In my opinion, yes. And, and while BP and Shell and Total may get there differentially, taking somewhat different approaches, one may take a portfolio approach, one may take a technology approach, one may take a uh, whatever approach they choose. There will be different approaches, but they are determined to achieve net zero. It is a characteristic of the industry, and I think the U.S. will follow that net zero uh, carbon uh, is a license to operate for the future. If you're not net zero, you're going to have trouble expanding. Bill Riley, some people would say that protests, there were a kayak to this, and there was a lot of political pressure put on Shell in the Arctic uh, that raised the cost of doing business in the Arctic for them. Do you think that, you know, that some of the, the pressure on these oil companies is, is changing the equation for them about where they go, where they spend, uh, because there's, there's rising concern and, and political pressure on them um, for, for what they do? Some, some of the biggest banks, for example, uh, BNP and Citibank, and I think others have said they're not going to finance projects in the Arctic because they're getting pressured for what, what are you funding? What are you investing in? Is that trickling up into the boardroom? You know, as I said, I don't see a lot of interest on the part, certainly of the majors, into more Arctic development, at least if we're talking about the most controversial one that people usually bring up. It's the wildlife refuge. But I think there's a, a, a tendency in the oil industry, certainly before the, the, the what do we call this, before we're all sheltering in place, to go where the opportunities are. And frankly, they have not been difficult to go to Canada, to go to uh, Nebraska, the Dakotas, and Oklahoma, and Texas, and, and even Pennsylvania, and the East, Coast, East area, um, Eastern United States. I don't think that pressure has had much impact or that they have felt much, uh, by and large. I think there is a danger of... Um, of hypocrisy on the part of the, the critics sometimes of the, the oil and gas industry. I noticed that the Norwegian oil fund, which is a trillion dollar fund, has said that they're not going to invest anymore in fossil fuels. <laughs> well, I mean, do they say that with a straight face? The entire fund has been built by the sale of oil and they can, it continues to be. There, there's a lot of that going on, I think.
Uh, one thing that occurs to me is that after we are allowed to go out to restaurants and cafes and to travel, whether or not it's going to be as acceptable as it used to be for companies, for non-governmental organizations to bring their people together for meetings, which we now have discovered can happen quite efficiently and effectively on Zoom. That's uh, got to raise a different kind of question we used to have. CEOs always were of the opinion that working at home was not efficient. You couldn't really trust people to do it. My understanding is that's no longer true. They're astonished to see how well everything is going and how it's reduced cost and may reduce future costs for, for rent, for travel, for all sorts of things. That, uh, I think, could bode for significant decrease in consumption of fossil fuels. And I think that will probably be a positive. You're listening to a conversation about what's ahead for the fossil fuel industry. This is Climate One. Coming up, can this tiger change its stripes? The oil and gas business, even though it has expertise, I don't think it's a necessarily quite as easy uh, to shift this industry. You know, it's difficult, I think, from this seat to say uh, with great confidence, uh, we're just going to move into the offshore wind. We'll just do that. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the future of the oil industry in a changing world. Joining me from their homes are three experts, former EPA Administrator Bill Riley, Heather Richards of E&E News, and John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil. Millennials see oil very differently than their parents do. Many young people these days don't own cars or even drive. They're far more concerned about the changing climate, a threat they could be living with for decades to come. How does the generational divide affect how we think about energy in the future? John Hoffmeister says it all comes down to technology. I think the technology alternatives that millennials see are very different than the technology preferences that boomers see. Boomers grew up in the comfort of the individual automobile. Uh, they couldn't wait to get their driver's license. They couldn't wait to get out and see the USA and their Chevrolet or whatever phrase you want to use. And, and the idea of taking a cruise, flying around the world, whatever it might be, the points, accumulating points on flights, I think that's a generational reality among the boomer population, which is not as young as it used to be. The millennial population is growing and taking on a totally different perspective on technology. I teach at a couple of different universities, including the University of Houston, and I can tell you that just the interactions with my students is a totally different conversation than I would have with my peer group. Totally different. May I add to that, uh, John and Greg, one challenge to technology, and I think the critics of the oil and gas industry um, make too little of its potential positive contribution to addressing our major problems is to figure out how to extract carbon dioxide from the air and to do it cost-effectively. That is a challenge that without, if it is not met, we cannot achieve the Paris goals. We simply have to get what are called negative emissions. The oil and gas industry, I, I think, is supremely qualified to have the scale, to have the engineers, to have this, the expertise to undertake problems like that. Do you think there's any possibility that they would? Or how could we encourage them to? And I think that is part and parcel of what the Oil and Gas Climate Coalition is addressing. If you Google, all of your listeners, Greg, could Google Bill Gates carbon capture. There's a big pilot project taking place in British Columbia of doing exactly what Bill is describing, direct air capture of carbon dioxide. Yes, it's expensive today. A price on carbon could help pay for that. But the industry, you're absolutely right, Bill. The industry has the technology, the people, and the potential resource to put together the kind of industrial facilities as big as power plants to begin extracting carbon dioxide from and, and the direct care, air capture technology. But it has to be done at scale. And that's what the industry is also good at, scale. They know materiality. They know scale. They know physics. They know chemistry. And so they have all the basic skills to take a, a cubic foot of 
air. We would call it air. And to separate the various components of that air, whether it's nitrogen, oxygen, CO2, whatever it may be, and to capture the molecules, because that's the other thing the industry does. It understands material at the molecular level. And that's what you do with direct air capture. And, and the Shell Sky scenario, and I'm not trying to promote it or promote Shell, but there is a scenario published a year ago, which calls for by 2070, a whole industry called direct air capture with tens of thousands of industrial facilities pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere on a 24 seven basis in the same way power plants operate. We have a question from Kerry on YouTube uh, for Heather. Uh, to what extent are big petroleum companies positioning themselves to participate in renewable energy sources? And I'll just put a point on that for you, which is could offshore oil rigs become offshore uh, wind, wind farms, that sort of thing? Could the companies play a role there? Yeah, I think definitely there's a there's some crossover there. Um, I, some of the biggest kind of proposals that are coming out in the U.S. for offshore wind, which is a brand new industry, uh, we only have one uh, small facility operating off the coast of Rhode Island right now. But we have a lot of uh, proposed facilities for offshore wind up and down the East Coast. Um, but the some of the biggest companies that are proposing those are 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 from you know Norway, uh, Denmark, uh, who have a background in that. But like Equinor, one of the companies that is part of this, I mean that's that has a history in the oil and gas business. I mean Shell has interest here. Um, there's a lot of ties back to the oil and gas industry, I think, um, and potentially in the future of offshore wind, we see. Um, oil and gas being a part of that. I would caution ab about kind of a tit for tat or, you know, easy replacement um, when we have those kind of conversations, because it doesn't exactly work that way for one, um, the number of people, you know, that are kind of employed in, in the offshore wind space once that is up and running is very different than the offshore oil and gas business. You know, they're different right now. Regionally, we have a lot of oil and gas, um, obviously down on the coast and it supports Louisiana and Texas. And it is very much a part of those economies down there. All that expertise is focused down there. Um, whereas offshore wind, what we're seeing at least early on is going to be up in the Northeast. So, um, so, you know, when we have, again, we have high level conversations, we can kind of talk about, well, there's so much expertise in the oil and gas business, like the, these gentlemen were talking about before, uh, that could be utilized in other ways. Industries, you know, could cross over into the direction that we're going, a cleaner direction that we're going. And there's some truth in that for sure. Um, but, you know, I do think that we, you know, have to slow down and we're we're not going to see an easy passover from one to the from one to the other the oil and gas industry has grown so big it makes a lot of money um you know it it has like this internal um drive to it partly because it's the, the demand is so high it's so much a part of our lives it's so much a part of our economy um and we talk about kind of stepping into renewable space um we talk about stepping into new technologies um that's a different uh it, it's a different personality of those industries right and the oil and gas business even though it has expertise i don't think it's a necessarily quite as easy uh, to shift this industry even these major players who are you know bp and these guys are going to find a way to exist post oil and gas for sure um, but I don't think it's, you know, it's difficult, I think, from this seat to say uh, with great confidence, uh, we're just going to move into the offshore wind. We'll just do that. You know, that, that kind of conversation has happened on the ground as we've seen kind of cold decline, which is moving into a different area. But it's a very good example, I think, of the conversation of, well, instead of coal, we'll just have wind jobs, renewable jobs. Look at the growth of solar jobs. Look at the growth of wind technician jobs as the onshore wind uh, industry grew. Um, and it's just not, it's not tit for tat. You know what I mean? And on a high level, we might be able to say, hey, the numbers equalize out or what have you. But when we, we talk about human beings, we talk about localized economies, global economies, it's just not easy. It's just very, very complicated. We have a question from Howard on Facebook about how can we reach Paris climate goals and better uh, without reversing our current commitment to economic growth and consumerism. John Hofmeister, you know, you think that technology incrementalism will work. Um, is the system the solution or is it, does it have to be completely radically changed? I, I think it will be incrementalism that wins out in the end because there will be an ongoing political cycle of every two years we have elections. And every two years, we judge elections by the state of the economy. And if the economy is not growing or if the economy is not successful, we change political parties for whichever party will offer the better uh, agenda for economic growth and development. So the technology occur that occurs over time as we learn more and can do more, I think will be the solution. Uh, I've given a 50-year view of this from my perspective. Today, 85% of all energy on Earth 
is fossil energy, coal, oil, natural gas. By 2050, 2060, I think we could get to 40% of energy coming from fossil energy. But that means a tremendous increase in energy alternatives, such as wind and solar, such as nuclear, and we haven't touched nuclear, which is the densest energy known to civilization that I think needs to be redefined, reconsidered, and reinstituted as a major factor in energy for the future. But And then, and then there's the whole world of hydrogen and what we could do with hydrogen, again, incremental technology to make sure it's safe and that it's reliable. But there's a whole different way of approaching energy over the next 50 years. Heather Richards, you're going to face uh, more than the rest of us on this conversation. You're going to face the, the changing climate longer, deeper into the future. Do you think incrementalism can get the job done? Um, I mean, get the. I, I think it depends on what you know what the bar is we're trying to reach. You know, what do we mean by get the job done? I think that people my age and certainly my my nephews and people younger than me are, are going to be dealing with this in a very serious way for a very long time. Um, so incrementalism might just be the reality as opposed to the best way or, you know, the, you know, the most possible, it's just, it might just be the reality as opposed to what's best. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I think a lot of people my age, and this is separate from my job as a journalist or what have you, I think just a lot of people my age are aware of this in kind of a very existential way and don't know exactly how to process, um, you know, what, what comes next. And I, and I think just in general, people in the general population don't have a massive understanding of uh, the predominance of fossil fuels in our lives and uh, how reliant we are on them and how, how inextricable it feels uh, to, to folks who know a lot about it or follow it closely. Um, it's just wetted throughout our society and uh, our lifestyles today. Uh, we talked earlier about poverty and um, about how much of the world just still doesn't have <laughs> basic energy needs. I mean, these are these sometimes those are set up as straw men to to kind of die, you know, get rid of a, an honest conversation about moving away from fossil fuel development. But there are some that is a reality as well, right? And so I think we have some really really deep, uh, difficult conversations about what our society looks like and how we move ahead. And I think probably people my age and more so people younger than me are, are probably going to bear the brunt of of some of that heavy lifting, unfortunately. Do you feel betrayed by boomers? No, <laughs> I think I don't. I don't necessarily feel that way, um, but I do. I do. Uh, I do feel frustrated with boomers today uh, when they won't kind of talk about it in an honest way. And I think that's just in in general frustration for anybody, right? Is we want to have honest conversations. I don't want straw men. I don't want. Uh, people to kind of disingenuously engage me in conversation without really talking about the reality in the same way when I talk to folks who don't know about how uh, how important oil and gas has been in, in terms of bringing us to where we are today. And, um, you know, and I, I might have to correct them. I, I, I get frustrated on the other side when folks who are um, kind of, uh, you know, heavy, heavily critical of, of moving in, in a green direction, um, refuse to have a con honest conversation about the fact that that's possible if we make some hard decisions. It's possible if we are responsible. Um, you know what I mean? So I think the frustration is not uh, what boomers have done up to this point necessarily so much as wanting people that are a bit older than me to have a very frank and honest conversation about the situation we're in right now and how we move into a better situation. Um, because right now, people like me don't dominate in terms of the power structure. Um, a lot of those decisions are still being made by people that have been around a, a bit bit longer and <laughs> have the benefit of expertise. And it's very important that they uh, are very honest and engage in these difficult conversations in an honest way. So do you think boomers should relinquish power more willingly? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, that's a uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, are we talking about uh, politicians or? <laughs> I know I'm kind of putting, going outside the lines here, but the idea that because I think ultimately the more I talk about climate, it co it does come down to power. There's a lot of consolidated power by the the incumbents that the that you know tomorrow doesn't have as much power or money as as the, the you know the, the establishment of today. And I just personally start to question more whether this incrementalism is going to get the job done fast enough. What's comfortable and incremental. Um, the you know Bill Riley that the math and the science is not calling for comfortable and incremental the, the the math and science ten years of a carbon budget you know you brought this to a moral realm earlier with uh, with Pope Francis you know morality and math of this are different than comfortable incrementalism I don't think that incrementalism is going to get us there 
But I also don't think, and this is uh, this is going to sound pretty pessimistic. I don't think this generation has it in them or in us to solve this problem. You look back at the first Earth Day, as the New York Times commented on it, if you were not a friend of the environment in 1970 on Earth Day, you kept quiet about it. That is so far from true in today's America. I mean, the fact that we have at least 40%, 45% of people who, who are very comfortable with a, an administration that considers climate change a hoax is a, is a very large break on the kind of transformation that we're going to have to have. And it isn't just a transformation in the economy. I think first it's going to have to be a transformation of the culture. That's what it's going to take. When John cited that number, and it's a scary number, that 85%, I think he said, of all of the aggregate energy used in the world is fossil fuel. That has come down something like 2 or 3% in the last 20 years, which shows what snail's pace progress we have really made. Even though we have, we've got so much more in the way of renewables, of solar and wind and everything else, it's hardly made a dent. And the Energy Information Agency says it isn't going to come down anywhere near where John wants it to come down to, 40%. So it's going to take a transformation of technology, of the economy, but behind that has to be a passionate, a deeply believing commitment to change and to solving this problem and to extraction of carbon dioxide from the air. I don't see it happening in the next 15, 20 years. I think probably after that period, when we've had enough experience with some of the catastrophes that are anticipated by, by what the science shows and the models show with respect to sea level rise and storms and the volatility of them and the rest, then I think a new generation will be ready to act. And I think what our job is now is to prepare for that day by doing the things, you know, electrifying the transportation world and cars, electric utilities so that they're powered by renewables, a whole range of things that can be done that will have significant impact. But the reality is that they will not alone solve the problem. Solving the problem is going to take a cultural transformation. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about the oil industry with my guest, Heather Richards, reporter for Energy and Environment News, Bill Riley, former U.S. EPA Administrator and Co-Chair of the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill, and John Hoffmeister, former President of Shell Oil Company and the founder and CEO of Citizens for Affordable Energy. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major platforms. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.